Welcome to the Lived Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Kleban. If you're a first-time listener, please check out my story in the feed. You can go back there and check it out to hear what's about. But on today's episode, we have an interview with Coach Carly, aka Carly Evans. And Carly reached out to me via the website livedexperiencepodcast.com to share her story about supporting someone. Um, her ex-partner had bipolar disorder and everything that comes with that. And it's a perspective I haven't had on before. I haven't had a partner on of someone with a serious mental illness before to talk about it. So I was really happy to have Carly on. And Carly was a fantastic guest. She's got lots of very valuable information. She's um, a coach as well in regards to trauma and lots of other things as well. And she's got a lot of free resources on her website at coachcarly.com, which I recommend you check out. But really good focus here on trauma and hearing someone's perspective about supporting a loved one um, with with a mental illness as opposed to the child. This is a, this is a, a, a partner. So really good story, really good story, really good interview. And I was really appreciative of Carly's time. So big thank you to her. And if you like what you hear, please make sure you leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. So without further delay, on to today's episode. So thanks for joining me today on the Live Experience Podcast, Carly. And you reached out via the contact form on, on my website, and you told me a little bit about yourself. But how about you introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a little bit about your your background and why you wanted to come on today and share your story. Sure. So I'm Carly. I live in Perth, Western Australia, originally from the UK, grew up outside, just outside of London, and then spent a lot of my kind of late teens and all of my 20s pretty much in London. Moved over here when I was 29. Um, and yeah, currently work as a, I run a business doing change and trauma coaching, so life coaching, um, working in the kind of mental health space. I'm a big... Um, my, one of my passions is helping people kind of through suicide prevention strategies and recovery from child abuse. Um, and I also do energy work. So I teach Reiki workshops and do lots and lots of energy treatments all week long. So, uh, and work in the justice space too. So lots of mental health stuff there, lots of people with addiction issues and all kinds of um, issues that kind of go with that as well. So, um, and I suppose the reason that I reached out to you, I listened to your podcast, the, uh, I think last week I was listening to it and you were talking about your experience of having kind of been raised by a mum who had bipolar and it was just triggering all kinds of flashbacks for myself, you know, uh, from a relationship that I had 15 years ago now. So showing my age in my mid twenties. Um, and yeah, I just kind of wanted to reach out to you, I suppose, to, to share, I suppose, that side of, of a story as well, you know, in terms of being a partner of someone who's got those kind of issues and, um, yeah, just wondered if it would be something that your audience might want to hear. <laughs> well, I think it definitely is because, um, it's, it's, I haven't had someone who's been the partner of someone with bipolar disorder. It's generally been someone with bipolar disorder or a children or a family member affected by it. So maybe, yeah, do you want to maybe just start off with what's bipolar disorder to you? What do you define mm. as, or how would you describe it to someone or what's your definition of your experience with it? Yeah, I suppose. Um, well, when I got together with my partner, um, my ex-partner, he, uh, he was undiagnosed. So, um, he had four manic episodes during the three years that we were together. And then the last 18 months, he was in just major depression. What I've known, I think he was my first experience of being around anyone with bipolar. I'd, I'd experienced a lot of people with um, depression, anxiety, that kind of thing, but not bipolar. So he was kind of my my entry into that world. And I've since worked with a lot of people who have bipolar. And I've noticed that everyone has different cycles. There's generally mania, depression, 
kind of a period of stability in between but everyone's cycles can be really different from what I've noticed so you know some people have really long cycles in between some people don't necessarily get the um, as depressed um, but have more hypomania so just seeming like they're really um, a bit hyperactive and um, very very energized you know so um, that's not necessarily the the type of mania that will lead someone into psychosis which is what my my ex-partner was in quite a lot and um, for, quite, for quite a long time so I've seen a lot of different um, types of bipolar with people and, but what I've noticed a lot of is substance abuse goes um, heavily with it for for pretty much all the people that I've encountered um, yeah so and 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 something else that I've kind of found is that people really like being manic. <laughs> mm. Um I think you mentioned that when you were talking about your mum as well you know then and I found that with my ex-partner as well you know when 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 they're in the stage of mania even when they're really psychotic um for them it's not necessarily a problem they're having a great time it's the depression they don't like. <laughs> It's very right, Carla. Yeah, they're, when they're high, it's a good thing. And if you, unless you're unless you're in that situation, you're never going to really know, I guess. But um, it, but it can be quite confronting as the partner on the other foot. So maybe do you want to describe, just maybe just describe to people like because people just think generic bipolar sort of up and down, and you know there's not much else to it. But obviously, as you would know, um, someone being psychosis or or being manic, it can be very confronting and it can be very frustrating as well. So maybe do you want to describe a bit from your perspective about that side of it. Yeah, um, it was really scary at times. Um, as I said, he hadn't been diagnosed when we met. So um, later on when we spoke about, you know, after he was diagnosed, I, I kind of spoke to him about did he think he'd experienced mania in the past? And he said, yeah, I, I definitely think I, I have. Um, what I found was it was really difficult for or to actually kind of get him linked in with mental health treatment. Mm. Um, so I suppose some of the earlier signs were he just would not shut up when we were trying to watch a movie. You know, I remember trying to watch a movie with him, just try and chill out for a bit. And he would just talk nonstop for five hours and you'd have to keep, you know, he'd get up and he'd pause the movie and you're just like, Oh God, you know, when are you going to stop talking? <laughs> um, it wasn't necessarily really obvious that he was in psychosis initially. Um, he was just very, very hyperactive, you know, and, Later on, I, I was training at the time to be a probation officer in London. So I was also kind of, I was starting this new, really full on job. Um, I'd done my psych degree and, and forensic psych masters at uni, but then I'd kind of, I, I was temping for a couple of years in a bank. And it, this was my first kind of proper career based job. And I started that in March 2007. And then we met, I think it was around June. So I was still really, really fresh into this job. It was two years of training. I was doing another degree as part of the training as well. So it was a really full on job. And I'd come home and I was learning loads about mental health and some of the stuff that I was learning about mental health, but also family violence stuff, you know, in my training. I was, it was just sparking all these things in my consciousness about, you know, well, I'm going through that at home. This is what's happening in my house, you know, and we weren't living together initially, but I'd leave work, I'd come home and there'd be all these screwed up notes, just scribblings, all these scribblings that he'd been, he'd been doing all day long, you know, just scrunched up notes of paper, literally covering the entire floor. You couldn't see a space. You couldn't see where the floor was, just all his ideas and random musings in his head. He started typing into his iTunes search bar because he thought that his, you know, he would 
type a question or whatever, and then his music would give him the answer or would be talking to him in some way. Um, and over we we were we were part of a pretty big friendship group in London at that point, and um, we were going out socialising a fair bit, and some of the reactions that you know you would get from people were not very nice at times and and I you know people calling yelling in the street you're you're effing crazy as you're walking past and while you're as a couple trying to figure out what's going on and he was trying trying to kind of make sense of his world that he was experiencing I was thinking what is going on and how can I help him um and so you know that that level of lack of understanding I suppose from some of the people around us didn't didn't really make me want to open up and talk to some people mm. I did have some really close friends that I could speak to and I kind of kept out of a big friendship group I kept it very very small in terms of the people that I was probably talking to about what was going on um and when he was properly in psychosis that was when it, it got really scary you know he before we lived together he came around to to my house and he just started packing up all my stuff and you know, I was trying to, it took a while, I think, for, for me to get out of him what he was actually doing. And in his mind, I was in danger because people were after him. So he needed me to move in with him and, and he was packing up all my stuff so that I could go and live with him. And I, that was a time where I just had to roll with his delusions because I realized that um, there was kind of sometimes no way of getting out of what his thought process was. It's like, I almost found the same when I was working with some autistic children who, you know, if they saw the sky as green, um, you could not argue with them and say it was blue. <laughs> you know, it's their own perspective on things, right? So in his mind, I was in danger because of him. And so I just had to roll with that delusion and say, okay, so if I'm in danger because of you, am I not safer not living at your house? And eventually he agreed with that and, and kind of let, let me stay in my house. <laughs> it was pretty crazy. Um so yeah, all these weird things would happen all, all day long. And I just, it was a three-year period of my life. And when I think back on that period of time, I just think how many crazy things happened all day long, you know, and how did how did we get through that? Um, you know, he would call me at work nonstop to check that I was okay or to check that if I was really there um, because oh, God knows what was happening in his mind. Um, when we we tried initially, myself and his sister, to stage an intervention um, to get him to voluntarily come with us to the hospital or to a doctor. And in his mind, he was completely fine. So that that didn't go very well at all. Um, I think anyone who's in a carer role for anyone with mental health issues would probably, you know, um, have had that experience at some point uh, where someone kind of is just not really wanting to engage in that support. So he hadn't been diagnosed at that point. We were just trying to figure out what was going on. And eventually I <clears throat> I went away. I remember a couple of periods of time where my mum took me away because she could see that I wasn't coping very well. Um, I, I wasn't telling my parents very much, you know, because I didn't really want them to worry about me. Um, but they knew that things weren't good. And I went away to the Lake District with my whole family so up near Scotland, a long way away from London. And we were on this walking holiday. And so I didn't have very good phone reception up there. And when, whenever my phone, whenever my phone would kind of start picking up some reception, I'd just get inundated with messages. Um, 
initially a lot from him because it was kind of just he was hounding me at that point you know uh, and then later on I would get voicemails from friends um, and one of them said he's he's in a psych ward you need to come home because I was his guardian at that point um, his, he was from New Zealand and um, I was pretty much his primary carer so I had to have this horrible memory of getting on a train at six in the morning with my mum. I remember being on the phone uh, to a friend and just organising going back home with my mum standing there and just saying, what are you doing? Why are you going back? You know, and just thinking, what am I supposed to do? You know, my, my partner is in a mental health unit and I'm his guardian. You know, I can't just stay here and have a holiday. <laughs> you know um and I just remember that I think it's like a six hour train journey or something um just thinking what I'm what am I going into you know I don't know what I'm going to find um a friend of mine who's whose mum has bipolar so he kind of had that experience and and knew that he could support me through I suppose he came to the hospital with me and my partner at the time then thought that me and him were having an affair. So he he got really aggressive mm. and he he pinned me up against the wall kind of with his arm like that, uh, with my neck kind of just pinned up to the wall. And, and he got pretty quickly ripped off me by security and nurses and stuff and jabbed and sedated. And that was just a really scary experience. And I remember talking to the uh, the psych nurses and stuff, and and they were, I suppose, interviewing me about his symptoms, and you know, because they weren't really getting much out of him. Um, interviewing me about his symptoms and what I suppose my experience of him had been leading up to him going to that psych ward, and uh, and I remember how difficult it was to almost like by then I realised through lots doing lots of research that I thought he had bipolar. And, and I remember the frustration of almost not necessarily not being believed, but thinking, how hard is it to get this diagnosis happening? You know, they were about to release him from hospital with no diagnosis, no help. Um, and I remember that kind of feeling of frustration. Um, and the, the whole reason that he'd ended up in a psych ward, luckily, um, you know, uh, and, I, and I think this is a common theme as well. People get picked up by police and, and then taken to a mental health unit. He had gone. While I was away, he'd gone to visit a friend and his wife had answered the door and she was heavily pregnant. And the way that he was acting really, really scared her. So they called the police. He got picked up and taken to a psych ward. And um, he was in there, I think it was a two or three week period. And the whole time he was in there, whenever I would go and visit him, which, which was on my lunch break from work, it was really, I realized how messed up it was at the time. I'm working down the road as a probation officer and on my lunch break, I'm going to this psych ward to go and visit my partner. <laughs> and, um, and he was being, he was on 24 hour observation. So they were just nonstop watching him. And I remember us trying to find like a little bean bag in a corner that was kind of way past the little peephole for the door so that we could actually just, hang out together and have some privacy and and I walked away thinking if I was being watched 24 7 I would probably lose my mind as well mm. <laughs> you know um I thought that was kind of it, it wasn't necessarily a, a realistic assessment that they would get from someone when they're non-stop invading their privacy mm. um I've rambled a lot, so feel free no, to no. stop me. <laughs> no, well, you're, you're describing the experience. If anyone's listening who's got a 
a love mem- a family a family member or loved one who's got bipolar disorder, they would have had a similar experience to you if that person's been into a psychiatric ward, and it can be very confronting. Because I experienced it as a really young kid, but you went in there as an adult, so you always feel a lot more aware of what was going on. It can be a very confronting place, and then you're in a room with the person, and yeah. So, what was the Obviously, you described the you know putting it against the wall and stuff, which has been a very traumatic experience. But what was your overall impression of the psychiatric ward? Can you describe it for people what it's actually like? So I'm sure England and Australia would be very similar. I believe in it and, and now you know institutions. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I've well, I've never been to a nice one. <laughs> there is the um, true. Yeah, and you know, I've worked in the mental health space for a long time here in in Perth and. Yeah, um, I think the... Is it Greylands in Perth still? Yeah, I was just... My mum was was in Greylands. That's That's the one I went to as a kid. Yeah, 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 and uh, and it it deserves its name, you know. Mm. It's not, it's not, there's no colourful land there, that's for sure. Um, They're just really depressing places to be in. I can't imagine what it would be like to be actually an inpatient there, you know, Um, and just... Yeah, there, there's. I don't think there's. Uh, I I don't know what the answer is with it, you know. Um, but they're not nice places to be in, and I can see how even going in there with, um, you know, I've I've worked with a lot of people who kind of will check themselves into places like that and private hospitals here in Perth for a bit of respite, I suppose. But I can't imagine doing that on a voluntary basis and then spending time in mm. the energy of that with all the people around and everyone kind of shuffling around, drugged up on clozapine, you know, everyone kind of looks a bit like a zombie and they're scary places, you know. I go in there a lot as a professional, but they're still scary places. Um, And especially when you're, you're locked in there, against your will, you know, he really, he came out a different person. Um, He was pretty heavily medicated and stuff and not very accepting. I don't think of his diagnosis. Um, And yeah, he didn't want to go back. He didn't go back. I don't know if he's gone back. Uh, well, I kind of had uh, I had to cut contact after I left him, you know, so mm. I'm not sure if he's been back in that scenario, but I know it wasn't a nice experience for him at all. Well, Greylands so. in Perth, it was, uh, uh, that was my mum was in, the in, in and out of there a lot of time. And so I just want to talk about Greylands because it's good to hear from someone who knows, knows what it's like to describe it because um, I remember when I was younger, mum was there and she was in the locked ward and there was no – there was no lights on the lamp. So there's no extension cords. There's no belts and stuff like that. And when you're a kid, you sort of go, well, why is there no, where's the lamp? And why can't yeah. you have a belt? And why can't you have this and that? And it's for obvious reasons now I know about it, but um, yeah, you're right. You're 24 hours and you got someone who's manic and high and you're then put into this, this room, which has got no stimulation whatsoever. Mm. And there's nothing in there, but you, which you can use as a, um, anything to harm yourself. It's, it, may, it must yeah. be very, from their perspective, it must be very, um, just be, just be very weird and just very, I don't know, not helpful. That makes, makes they're really sense. They're really clinical places. You yeah. know, it's not, there's nothing. I like being surrounded by comfy, cozy stuff, like nice fluffy blankets and cushions and my dog. And, you know, if you hear any weird noises, by the way, I've got a bulldog and she'll saunter in and out and probably do some weird grunting noises. Um, but yeah, there's not, there's nothing comforting or comfortable about being in a place like that and you know when you when you've got someone that's really paranoid and in psychosis mm. um being watched all the time you know it it's not going to make them better <laughs> no <laughs> it's really not no nah, but also the um yeah as you're right you describe it when people go it's really hard furniture there's nothing you know there's no 
as you said, there's no blankets, there's no real colour in it. Like Greylands especially, it's really drip and drab and mm. like and as you said, everyone's zonked out and there's a lot of you know, from being the kid but going through there was a lot of a lot of people I didn't want to be around too much. But uh, that's the mm. you know, we were around them a lot. But um yeah, it's just they're not a not a not a good place. So I don't know how from your perspective, obviously not a lot more better than me, but what's some stuff that you know about well, what would you do at a facility like that to make it obviously it needs to be safe still, but to make it more conducive to um, let's say, healing environment or more peaceful. Yeah. I think there's nothing wrong with having a bit of colour in a place like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um the office that I work in now, it's it's uh, you know, there's colour on all the walls, they're nice bright colours, there's art everywhere, they've got um kitchens with like hanging fake hanging plants, there's balconies everywhere, so people get some nice sun exposure and stuff. You know, there's there's plenty that they could do to make a place like that more inviting is the completely the wrong word, but you know, to make it more um comfortable to be in, to make it a bit more inviting, less clinical, you know, and um I think it really needs a bit of that, something that that makes people, uh, I suppose, a bit more reassured, um, especially when they're in there for a really long time because some people are, are in there for ages. Yeah. Yeah, we always used to have to get a bag and bring in some lumps. You'd demand to hold these, all these things from home and we had to bring them in and all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, you're right. They're very they're very full-on places if you're not exposed to it. But I was going to say as well from your perspective, how do you deal with um, having a partner with bipolar sort of for three years how did you deal with it yourself personally in regards to looking after yourself or just how did you how did you manage the relationship? Because I think it's a very important thing to hear that we don't hear about it too much in um, mental illness talk or awareness. It's always yeah. generally about the focus is on the person. There's never much focus around the person you're, like yourself, the partner or the kids or whatever. Mm, so yeah. how did you, how, from your perspective, how did you deal with it all? I've always been someone that's had a lot of personal development tools that I've been um, regularly using for myself and keeping a routine, I think is really important. So I know that if I don't exercise, like for me, I pretty much exercise every day. If I don't do that, my mental health doesn't, you know, eventually kind of goes downhill. Um, So making sure you're eating the proper food, drinking enough water, the real basic kind Mm -hmm. of stuff, you know, making sure you're getting enough sleep, which during that time when you're, when you're in a relationship with someone with mania is really difficult because they're awake (laughs) a lot more than normal. Um, So you kind of have to manage that sleep disturbance for yourself. Talking to people that I trusted, you know, not talking to everyone. I, I think before that I was, I'm generally a really open book. I don't mind talking about my stuff at all. I don't care if other people talk about my stuff generally. But when I was with him, what I noticed is that I wasn't just sharing my own stuff. You know, I was also talking about someone else's really personal stuff. So I really had to be careful about who I spoke to and really learned quite early on um, who, you know, people who I thought were trusted friends I couldn't necessarily lean on them in the way that I wanted to. So just having, it became a very small group of people that I would trust, I suppose, with that. Um, Some people that I could be really vulnerable with as well, who I felt like, you know, those times where I've been a mess that needed scraping off off the floor. They're the people that have done it. (laughs) Mm. Um, They'd feed me, they'd give me water, they'd put me to bed kind of thing. You know, it's like I was a kid again. Um, and yeah, just kind of really talking to people. I think the environment that it, the industry that I was working in was kind of helpful in a way because it's a the kind of field where you do have to do a lot of debriefing because of the nature of the work. So um, I, I would lean on my workmates. You know, they they kind of understand a lot more about mental health than a lot of my friends did. Um, 
I use energy work a lot. So I, I did energy work on myself every single day. It didn't necessarily move me forward in the way that it does when I'm I'm more stable and my life's more stable but it it kind of I kind of kept seeing this picture of like a hamster on a wheel I felt like it was that you know and and things like energy work and meditation and that kind of stuff were just stopping me from completely falling off sideways um during those periods of time you know so um yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it. Well, can you describe um, for me what energy work is? I've got no idea what energy work is, and I yeah. like I do. So, what's yeah, what's, sure. what's energy work? Can you describe for people? Okay, so just like we've got a really complicated physical body, we've also got a really complicated energy system as well. So, if you imagine that each of us is like a rechargeable battery, and plugging into an energy treatment or any, even thing like things like a massage or acupuncture, reflexology, something like that is like plugging yourself in to be recharged. So energy work tops up the physical body, the energy body to kind of balance and correct everything. That's, that's kind of going a bit squiffy, I suppose. So, um, you know, like it, I suppose the equivalent, um, if you compare it to the physical body, if you stopped giving yourself proper food, if you stopped drinking enough water, if you stopped doing those things that nourish you, eventually the organs in your body would kind of start shutting down. It's a bit the same with your energy field as well. So the more you can kind of, I suppose, remove negative energies that might be affecting you and, and, and I suppose complete energy hygiene really it's like almost like brushing your teeth in the morning you know um the more you can kind of rid yourself of anything that might be impacting your your energy field and then your consequently your physical body as well so okay there you go learn something new um now with the um what you uh were you surprised as well back at, back when you were experiencing this about this the lack of the let's say processes or system around because people with bipolar disorder it's very hard because what happens is is um they don't want to make themselves voluntary. It's very rare that they want to go voluntary, even though they're starting to get unwell. Family members or or partners will know that they're getting unwell, but there's a gap between them getting, you know, they, they get starting to get unwell and they get really unwell, and then you've got that gap in between where there's not much really you can do. So from your perspective, if what could be done during that period, or or what would you like to see happen? I think a big part of it is the person who has bipolar kind of getting into a place of acceptance that that's what's going on for them because I think there's a tendency of um, they feel better after a period of time on medication, then they just think they're better and then they don't think that they've got it anymore. Um, and and sometimes, you know, the medications as well, they have to go through so many different trials of different medications before they find the right one and that can be really um, difficult for them as well, you know, to... Um, I can understand why they wouldn't want to take it, but yeah, you're right. There's there is that gap. They kind of get better. And then there's that period of stability, which for some people is a really long time. And for other people is a really short time. You know, I've got, I know someone who kind of has week long cycles with that. Um, and I think it's about really when they are well, coming up with a safety plan, I think is really important. You know, a safety plan with their trusted people that they love to, to, for them to say, okay, when you're unwell, these are the different things that I notice and write that stuff down. And, you know, they won't notice it. The person that becomes unwell won't notice it straight away, but you can talk to them about what signs do you start seeing when you know you're becoming unwell and what can we do about it? What, what is most helpful to them when they know that they're going off track? Um, I think doing those things and, and coming up with that safety plan is really important when the person is in that period of stability, because 
and I do this with clients at work as well, you know, I'll come up with that safety plan with them. And then because you've created that together in partnership with them, when they do, when you do start seeing those signs and symptoms, then you can say, Hey, remember that we spoke about this. I'm just going to pull this out and show it to you to remind you, this is what I see happening right now. And these are the things that we both agreed would happen. Like you go and see Dr. X or you, you, you know, review your medication or we go to the beach or we talk to someone or whatever it might be. These are the things that we can do together. And I'm, I can help you with that. Um, to stop you going completely off the rails, you know, like I, I, after the first time after, um, my partner came out of what my ex-partner came out of hospital, we went back home and he was really depressed and he was still kind of getting used to his medication. I don't think he liked the way that the medication made him feel. I think he was on lithium and also a, he was on two different kinds of medications. I can't remember what the other one was now, but he didn't like the way that he was feeling. Mm. I think because he felt, you know, he'd gone from feeling really high and energized to just feeling nothing. And I think that's a real big thing for a lot of people is that they would rather feel something than nothing. (laughs) And I completely understand that, you know, so he stopped taking his medication and I don't know how long it was before I started noticing he was getting unwell again. That's the only way that I knew that he'd stopped taking his meds. And I lost my mind at him because I, you know, we had been through a lot together by that point. And it, a lot of people in our circle had also gone through a lot because of what was going on. And I was really upset with him that he hadn't spoken to me before just making that decision himself because we were supposed to be a team, you know, and to me it almost felt like he wasn't committed to, to recovery. And that's when I felt like I kind of, I'd lost the fight for myself and, thought what am I doing here you know Mm. so I think to have those open conversations with people when they are well and and to all agree on it together rather than that person feeling like they're being dictated to because a lot of people in their life are doing that you know and they're they don't necessarily trust the doctors who are telling them to do all these different things Mm. when you can actually have an agreement with someone that these are the steps we'll put in place if we start seeing these kind of things happening it's a lot more powerful it's you know you're handing the power back to them yeah you said a lot of Really good information there. I want to unpack, Carly. And one of them was about the acceptance of the disorder or of the condition, because I think that's a common thing. Um, maybe people who have bipolar disorder listening and going, that's not right. But from my experience and from your experience, I experienced the same thing. Even with my mum, who was like 60 years old, you know, it was very hard for her to accept bipolar disorder. And then to make sure that she adhered to medication every day. But then you look at it from their perspective and you and you go, well, I'm sick of trying all these different change. I feel like I'm mean, a walking experiment all the time. I've got to take this medication and I've got to get blood tests to make sure my heart's got any issues with this one and all this sort of stuff. And they just get sick of it, you know, taking six to five tablets a day and at two times a night or whatever it is, right? So I can understand from their perspective. But I think what you said is really important is about the acceptance of the condition and then having personal responsibility to manage it as best as you can for yourself and for your loved ones. I think that's the mm. – what I got really frustrated with with my mum was that she – even though she wanted to, but it just never really got to that stage where there was that sort of acceptance to do that. And I presume from your experience as well is the same. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I do, you know, I've got, I've also got people in my life who used to be, who have bipolar, used to be taking medication and then came off medication because they were really, um, they were really finding alternative ways of looking after themselves that that worked to a point where they didn't necessarily need that medication anymore, but they very, very safely came off medication by talking to their their trusted GP and and by 
speaking to their family about it and, you know, and, and, you know, with caution coming off those things, but it needs to be replaced with, with things that nourish your body and your mind, you know, proper food, exercise, sunshine, Mm. supplements, you know, um, whatever it is that you need to do to, to keep you well and healthy, I think is, a uh, you know, rather than just like a lot of people in, in the mental health space who are signed off on disability support and can't afford to eat proper food. So they'll just eat McDonald's three times a day. Like that stuff's not going to nourish your brain. So, you know, it's, um, it keeps you in that loop, doesn't it? Of, of not being well. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's reflective in the NDIS packages now. So if you know if you, when I was on a disability yeah. support pension, you get an NDIS package, and a part, large part of the package was gym, um, nutritionist, someone coming around making sure they took medication every day, someone to make and take out. So it was more of a holistic package with different services, which I think sort mm-hmm. of trying to, which is slowly starting to sink in. Like you know, you can't just expect to have someone have medication and as you said, eat a lot of junk food, not do any exercise, not socialize, and and be well. Mm-hmm. They might stay well mm-hmm. for a little bit, but having that holistic look at the the health which is the basic stuff but it's stuff that's mm. sort of not gets brushed by the wayside when it comes to the mental yeah. health discussion and it's also stuff that is more expensive than going to buy junk food and just taking your medication isn't it because mm. these these alternative therapies and stuff they they don't necessarily come cheap and that's where the individual packages like NDIS are, are really beneficial you know when people do have that funding and they can make their own choices about where to spend their money um then then it's much easier but you know a lot of people don't have access to those funds unfortunately so yeah it's a tough one because if you're not on the, the disability support pension and you've got bipolar disorder yeah you've got to source all that stuff yourself or mm. you know until until you get that but um i was gonna say as well you, you mentioned um you're a trauma coach as well and i think a lot of people who have who grew up with parents with mental illness and stuff have a lot of trauma and they might not realize it so maybe do you want to talk about trauma from your perspective and, and some things and some strategies around that mm. yeah so um a big part of trauma i think is being stuck in that in that very much the primal brain where you're just in fight, fight, flight or freeze all the time. Um, and like I know from, from that three year period, I was, I was just constantly running on adrenaline and, and you can, your body can only do that for so long before it goes completely kaput. Um, so, so when you're in those spaces where you've either been in childhood trauma um, and or adult trauma and everyone, you know, life is full of trauma, isn't it? For a lot of people, um, you go through those kind of periods of time and it's really important to when you come out of when you when you're going through that trauma to support your body and your mind and your soul as as much as you can. Um, and then once you're kind of out of that, I suppose that um, that's whatever is creating that trauma in your life. If it comes to an end, it doesn't always for for some people. Often what happens with people is that you go through that period of burnout because your adrenals is just so overworked and, and, you know, just fried um, that it can lead to that burnout or people get stuck in that trauma loop in their brain. And it's like the brain hasn't processed the traumas or trauma that's that they have experienced in their life. And so it's just almost stuck and it needs processing. So techniques like EMDR, eye movement, eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing. 
um, that psychologists use. That is a really, really beneficial technique to actually process trauma in the brain. Um, things like EFT, emotional freedom technique, tapping, uh, which if you just go on YouTube and search EFT, um, there are so many amazing free videos on EFT that you can use as many videos as you want all day long. You know, um, that kind of stuff helps to those kind of tools kind of help to just process the, the trauma in the brain and just help your, I suppose, calm your nervous system. So that's one of the, the most important parts of recovery from trauma is just learning that you have a trauma response, which has fired up and fried your nervous system. And there are lots of different things that you can do to calm your nervous system. Same kind of things that we spoke about before, you know, sunshine, water, get plenty of sleep, nourish your body with food. Um, but there's also plenty of other things that you can do just to calm your nervous system. It does not happen overnight. <laughs> um, it's, a you know, those habitual things that you build into your every single day that you just have to keep plugging away with um, while you just start feeling better and better, hopefully. Mm. Now with, um, cause this podcast really focuses on the family unit with, with people who've got mental illness. And I think a lot of people who live in that thing, I certainly didn't think I had trauma or PTSD or anything like that. Whereas my, my sister on the other hand got help for it and was telling me all this stuff. I'm sort of going, well, I didn't really feel that at all. But when I look at it objectively now, if someone, if I told it to someone else, what would happen, they would go, oh yeah, absolutely. So how, from your perspective, like how does someone know if they have, um, let's say trauma or emotional trauma, because a lot of people might go through some tough things and just think, oh yeah, that was just the way it was, the way it was. And then lying in the sand and then away they go. But they probably don't realize there's things in their life that they're doing current day, which are responses to something from back then, whether it be might be they might overeat, they might drink, they might not be good in relations, whatever it is, but they they never really deal with it. So maybe do you want to yeah. elaborate, elaborate on that? Yeah. So I suppose there's a few different categories that people fall into. You know, I, I do see a lot of people just go into that avoidance stage where um, they might just, you know, overuse alcohol, overuse drugs. Um not talk about anything like there was a client that I worked with who he'd he'd walked in on his friend having hung, hung himself and he never wanted to talk about it but everything that happened in his life after that point was just you know his trauma response but in his mind he's like no I'm fine I'm not talking about it you know and he would freeze up and just get really angry and his so he would drink a lot take out his anger on everyone else around him you know so he was anyone would say that he was just not, not a very nice person to hang out with, <laughs> but really when you dug down into how he really felt, um, you know, he was actually a really vulnerable person who couldn't, couldn't show his vulnerability at all. So that is a trauma response and especially common as a guy in Australia, <laughs> you know, um, where you're just told to toughen up, harden up, you know, chin up kind of thing, just get on with things. Um, other trauma responses that some people don't really see as trauma responses, but I see memes every now and again, or not memes, but, you know, quotes uh, yeah. floating around on Facebook every now and again, where I think I saw one uh, this morning actually about talking about how some people might be called like a, a wise soul or like an old soul. And they're, they're like mature beyond their years kind of thing when they're, when they're, they're a young kid. Um they'll generally end up in helper type professions, right? So they want to be the healer or, or the counselor or whatever it might be. And, and that's their way of dealing with trauma because they've been, I suppose, especially for kids growing up in, in, in environments where uh, mum or dad or both or people around them have mental health issues, substance abuse issues, whatever it might be, they become the parent 
you know, so they're, they're the ones that just have to grow up really quickly, look after themselves, pack their lunch, take them off to school, you know, um, and they becomes the one become the ones that they, they love helping other people with their problems, but that can also be a bit of an avoidance tactic for, for dealing with their own stuff. Right. I definitely went period, through a period of time of doing that and it, it becomes to your detriment because you're not really focusing on your own stuff. <laughs> um, and then there's people who are obviously in PTSD and stuck in that trauma loop where they're full of anxiety, they're not sleeping, they're getting flashbacks, um, you know, they, they're not coping at all with life, they can't work, um, they're, they're not fueling their body in the right way, they don't, they don't have great relationships and friendships around them, um, they get stuck in those addictive cycles and, and then some people spend their whole lives like that, you know. So all of those different things are trauma responses. They're just some are not as obvious as others. Hmm. Thanks for all that information. But how can someone recognize it and then snap themselves out of it? Because I think when you say these things, like you, I would say most people in some regards have some sort of trauma in some capacity, some obviously more serious than others. But I reckon a lot of people who are listening to this could nod their head and something in their life is, would be a trauma response to what they're doing. So how can someone all right, first identify themselves and actually look at it and, and go, well, maybe that's what I have find out more information about it. And then what can they actually do about it? Yeah, I think, um, I think some people are really, really resilient and will um, come across as having a real gallows sense of humor, um, you know, and everything's kind of, they've got a really good sense of humor, but it's all really dark and everything that they watch is all quite dark. And, and sometimes that is also representative of they've gone through stuff and, and they're kind of holding onto it and they can't, they're not necessarily focusing on the, the good stuff that happens in life. So some of the things that you might notice is that people are just generally speaking, really cynically, really negatively, um, you know, their first response to everything is just a negative one. And, and people kind of find it a bit difficult to be around them because they're a bit angry, irritable, you know, they're just not really that fun to hang out with. Um, so if you find yourself really snappy and irritable, and if it's just easy to, to just reach for a bottle of wine or a beer, or, you know, you're kind of finding that you would rather, um, do certain activities that that keep you busy or take your mind off stuff because you can't relax, you know? So I think not being able to relax is, is a big one. Not being able to spend time on your own is a big one um, because, you know, people get kind of almost like itchy, you know, they, they sit there and they're like, oh, I've, I need to do something. It's almost like an avoidance tactic. So if you, if any, if you tick any of those boxes, I suppose it's about really sitting there and reflecting with yourself. Um, do I find it difficult to be alone? You know, do I, do I need to just always be filling my time with stuff? Do I drink a bit more than I should? Um, do I not sleep as well as I want to, you know, are my relationships in my life going as well as I want them to, or do people find me difficult to be around, <laughs> you know? And then I suppose the kind of things that you can do about it are, I suppose, lots of self-reflective type of exercises and really, really spending time with yourself and kind of going inward and going, why do I find this so uncomfortable? What is it about me just hanging out and thinking about my own stuff? That What is it about that that I find so uncomfortable? What is it, what is coming up for me in the, those moments that I, I maybe can't cope with or can't deal with? 
and then finding a trusted friend that you can kind of just start talking to about that stuff. Write stuff down, get it out of your head, do it. I call it a brain dump, you know, just jot stuff down on paper. It doesn't have to make any sense, you know. Um, you don't have to start with Dear Diary or anything, you know. Just just get stuff out of your head onto paper. Chat to someone, go and see a professional if you if you feel like you want to or can. Um, but just reach out, I think, is a, is a really important first step. You don't have to know why exactly you're reaching out or what for or what it is that you're aiming for, just start by reaching out to someone and just talk it through from there. That's some great advice. Now what's, so someone identifies that reaches out, but what, what sort of professionally is there available for someone to sort of go and sort of, if they want to deal with this, is it with a, a psychologist, a coach, or what, what would you recommend for someone actually, if they want to really deal with it and, and get to the bottom of it? Yeah, I think um, it can be both or one or the other. It kind of depends on the situation. I think um, I get a lot of people coming to me for coaching who, you know, if I notice that they have some pretty significant trauma stuff coming up, I will always recommend that they're also linked in with a psychologist. Um, I think there is a huge benefit to psychology when it's combined with coaching, especially because I think psych counseling, you know, you spend a lot of time talking about the problem kind of over and over again. And yeah, there are tools as well that they talk about, which are kind of helpful in moving you forward. But coaching is very much solution focused therapy. So if you're doing those two things alongside each other, you're dealing with the trauma and you're also moving forward. If you can find a coach that is informed in trauma, then it might kind of you can you can kill two birds with one stone, I suppose. But um, but I think that psych counseling, you know, psychologists can provide a bunch of different kind of counseling techniques that coaches don't generally do. Um, so like the EMDR processing and I I do work with EMDR and EFT in my coaching sessions, but I would I would say going to a registered psychologist to do those kind of things for someone that's really, really knee deep in trauma would be really, really important to do. Okay. And do you want to go into a bit more detail? I know you have touched on a little bit, but what those two, I know people can look it up on, on YouTube, but how does it actually work in regards to the science yeah. behind it? So EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing is um, it's like a bilateral, they call it bilateral stimulation. So there's a number of different ways that you can do it. Uh, for anyone that might've heard about EMDR before, um, you might see like a psychologist kind of moving their uh, their finger and you're supposed to kind of follow with your eyes and track it while you're kind of talking about um, the trauma. Um, you can also be tapping on the opposite side of the body um, and do that in a number of different ways on your legs. It kind of doesn't really matter. It's about stimulating the opposite side of the body to the opposite side of the brain, if that makes sense. So what it does is actually kind of unstick the stuck part of the brain that's stuck in that trauma loop to actually process it. Um, because those memories associated with the trauma haven't actually been processed to, to be able to deal with them. You know, a lot of people go through traumatic stuff and, and not deal with it in the moment um, and then just wait for years and years and years to mm. deal with it. And if that's stuck in the brain, then it, it needs to kind of be resolved in some way. And then EFT or emotional freedom technique is also known as tapping. You tap on various places on the mainly on the face. So there's like different acupressure points that you would tap while you're talking out loud ideally you can also be saying it in your head about things that you believe to be true so if you search on youtube for eft and, and maybe put a keyword in like eft trauma or eft ptsd eft anxiety there's loads of stuff about anxiety all you need to do is copy what the eft practitioner is saying and where they're tapping so you literally just copy where they're tapping you vocalize what they're saying and by doing that part of it is like a break state in that it 
it kind of moves you away from the negative emotion that you're experiencing at the time and actually helps you to neutralize it. Um, and then part of it is, is just, yeah, that kind of processing, I suppose, out of the brain. Um, so you can use EFT to move away from, from feelings that you don't want and also to move towards feelings that you do want. Whereas EMDR is much more focused on just relieving the trauma aspect side of things. Okay. Now what sort of, it's a very, very, um, general question, I guess, but what sort of, cause I, I think a lot of people's issues are from unresolved trauma and as obviously you work in this area so you would know that firsthand but um what sort of progress can someone make when they go right i take i've got some issues here i'm going to be the brave take the brave step and book him for a psychologist or coach what sort of progress i know everyone's different but what sort of progress have you seen from working with people in regards to them addressing the, their issues um it really on the person and how committed they are to their own recovery, you know, um, but people can make massive, massive shifts and, and become more of them themselves, their authentic selves, I suppose, because what trauma does is it, it cakes you with a layer mm. of crap on top of who you really are. And you don't even really know who you really are because you're just lost somewhere in there, you know? So as you unwind and it's like being caked in layers of dust, as you just start dusting stuff off and, and kind of lightening the load, I suppose you feel a lot lighter, you feel happier, just kind of you start making progress towards feeling lighter, freer, you sleep better, you want to do better things for your body, you want to exercise more, eat better food, those kind of things. You, your relationships start improving. Um, so so you, people can make massive progress and, and have, you know, recovery to the point where you can talk about your trauma and not relive it. Um, you know, so talk about your trauma and not not feel the negative emotions. So you can have you can have the memory still of what happens, but um, you know, with things like EMDR, you detach the memory from the emotion of it. So you, you know, it would still be normal to feel sad or disappointed or whatever it might be when you're talking about significant trauma, but you can tell your story and not feel really affected by it. You know, um, like I share my story and I don't feel affected by it anymore. I just know that I can help people by sharing my story. Um, so people can make massive, massive changes in their lives and, and really everything in their life can be different as a result of that. You do um, with, you know, with some people, the, the difficulty is the initial bits, you know, the initial stages. So if you've never actually shared any of your trauma before, the hardest bit is starting because once you start unlocking that Pandora's box, basically, if you take the lid off Pandora's box, there's all that stuff there and it starts coming up and it doesn't feel good when it first start com starts coming up. And so sometimes people will, you know, they'll go for psych sessions or, or whatever and their trauma will come up and they'll walk away and they'll just feel rubbish. <laughs> mm. And they might feel rubbish for quite a few sessions. And sometimes people just stop because they don't want to relive it. They don't want to experience it. That happens to quite a few people, you know. Sometimes people just aren't ready and, and you just have to kind of, I suppose, tackle it with wherever someone is at. So um, you can use kind of, I suppose, softer tools and techniques um, like in in some of the tools that I use in coaching. I, I sometimes will suggest to people to not um, not deal in the initial stages with the the big hairy monster that's lurking in the background, you know, that whatever is the biggest thing that they've been avoiding talking about, we don't necessarily start with that. You know, we start with what I call the low hanging fruit, you know, um, an argument they had a friend with, with a friend last week or something 
they did last year that they feel really guilty about, you know, just stuff that isn't the really big stuff. And once you start clearing away some of that other stuff and they start feeling better as a result of that, people become a lot more willing to go and, you know, hunt down that big hairy monster over there. Are you surprised about the lack of um, awareness in general regarding trauma and PTSD when it comes to mental health awareness or just the people in general? Because I think, I just, I just think it's a no-brainer that like if you this gets pushed more for people to seek help for trauma with psychologists and, and coaches, I think it can really, really help because I think it's a, it's a big issue and as most people I think in some regard have had some sort of unresolved trauma in their life which still affects them to this day. Definitely. I think because of this kind of space that I work in, I don't see, I don't, I don't, the perspective that I have is not what the general population would have because I see trauma and people dealing with trauma all the time and all the different agencies that I'm surrounded by. So I don't necessarily know what it's like for Joe Bloggs to have, have a fresh kind of view of um, not even knowing about trauma, I suppose. So I suppose that's a difficult question for me to answer. Mm. Well, I'd say from an outsider, like from like, there's no like, if I said to someone, name an organisational charity that is just deals with PTSD and trauma, no one could name one. I would think as a general sense, right? Yeah, so yeah. It seems to be like, well, it's supposed to be lumped under, let's say, the mental health banner, which generally will fall under most times Beyond Blue or or whatever the organisation is, right? So it seems to be something that's really lost, but it's probably the most prevalent thing even in front of depression and anxiety, I would say in regards to the prevalence of it in the community, but it's not something where mm. the general public would really think about or give yeah. knowledge, I would say. I, I think now you mention it, like um, when you say things like PTSD, people automatically think about war veterans mm. and and just think that those are the only people that experience shell shock, you know, what you, what it used to be called. Um, so I think, yeah, there is, uh, the, as with any kind of mental health topic, everything needs more exposure, doesn't it? You know, and what will be the next thing? Schizophrenia probably, you know, like no one really talks about that enough. Um, but yeah, I think, I think trauma is everywhere. Um, and it's not obvious to people necessarily un, unless, unless it's really, really obvious or unless someone has been in the war or whatever it might be. So I think the more we can get it out there is a, um, not as a normal thing, but I think, you know, as, as a normal reaction to abnormal situations, um, and the more that people can talk about it and talk, talk openly on podcasts and stuff like that, you know, um, the, the better, the better it will be because I think, People listening to stuff like this will will have those aha moments and go, oh, maybe that's what's wrong with my friend or my loved one, or well, oh, maybe I have some stuff that I need to maybe look at from my past. Mm. You know, maybe I am avoiding stuff. Maybe this is why I feel not very good about my life and maybe a bit irritable and cranky every day. You know, so yeah, the more talk, people talk about stuff, the better. And then those people will also share their own experiences with the people that are in their lives too. Yeah, because I'm thinking more people. Bit old, bit older than you and I, because there's a lot of people. Yeah, you know, my 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 mum it was one of ten, and and they one of eleven. Sorry, and they had a, a dad with bipolar, and they had a you know a lot of issues and stuff on the farm. And it's never been really spoken about that much. And I know that her brothers and sisters. I don't know if they had, but I, I would say a lot of them wouldn't have had any help around, like any talk to anyone about it, even though they've experienced a lot of trauma. I would say from that. Mm. So I think the older generation, in particular. Uh, could definitely benefit from it, even though it's, it's yeah. a lot later on. But it just seems to be. Um, I just think as an issue, this is more prevalent than depression and anxiety on the surface for it. But it's something that is just never, as you said, it's only really associated with um 
with veterans or war yeah. veterans into it. Yeah. And that generation, you know, from from our parents kind of up, just didn't talk about stuff. They just got on with stuff. It's pretty rare and foreign as a concept because, you know, um, I suppose our generation is the first kind of generation where we could actually look past survival mode. You know, we, we don't have to deal with rationing our food and being in wars and stuff. From It's not as obvious to us. You know, obviously it's always occurring in the rest of the world, but it's not, it's not obvious to us like it was to them. And, and we've got things like social media where we're, we're much more connected than they were in some ways. And, and in other ways, we've never been more disconnected, right? Because of social media and stuff like that. But we have mm-hmm. the ability to reach out and talk and people are talking a lot. Um, so I think there's a lot of benefits to that as well. There is, um, there's a guy um, who called Dr. Gabor Mate. Have you heard of him? Yeah, he's great. He's on the um, Joe Rogan he, podcast. Yeah, so I heard him, yeah. yeah. He is just, if you know, he is an expert in the trauma space and he if you if you want to look him up on youtube he's just got some incredible stuff out there he really knows his stuff and just listening to him is so eye-opening you know so i think that that's something that people could do if they're kind of listening to this or watching this and and wondering where to start go and check out dr gabal mate yeah um and just start listening to his stuff you know He's got some great audio books. I just downloaded the most mm-hmm. recent one. I haven't listened to it yet, but yeah, you're right. When I heard him, I was thinking, "Gee, where's this guy?" It's it's he speaks like it. It's it's it makes so much sense, but it's something you never really have heard much before. It, it's quite and it's quite amazing the studies and stuff that he refers to, and it's um goes in the face mm-hmm. of what's happening right at the moment, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's he's definitely an inspiration, and he he's done a lot of work in the addiction studies. Um, and works a lot with things like he talks a lot about things like plant medicine and the alternative therapies and stuff like that. So yeah, really incredible person. Now, what's your perspective on the, the addiction? And because um, you obviously you're you working in is it in the criminal, you work with um yeah, um, I work in the justice system. justice system. Sorry, so you obviously see people who are affected by addiction and that. And the common the common person, you know, the average Joe would go, oh, you know, well he's just a drug addict or he's just this and that. But what they they need to have, well, you'd obviously know because you work with these people, but they're not just out of the blue become someone who's got substance abuse problems. There's some sort of significant trauma or some sort of undiagnosed mental illness or something, and then that goes to it. And can I just talk a bit about more the empathy that you've got from your side in regards to working with people like um, in these situations? Yeah, I think I've always had that ability to not just write people off in that way. Like I, I hear a lot, I've heard a lot from people, what do you want to work with junkies and criminals for? And that really pisses me off. Sorry mm. if I can't swear no, on the podcast, but it really, fine. that really gets to me, you know, because I, I, my answer always is that could be us in any, in, in right or wrong set of circumstances, we could be there too, you know, and you saw that with coronavirus as well, when people are losing their jobs, losing their houses, ending up living in a tent, you know, like um, sometimes it's a miracle that people aren't on drugs when they've gone through kind of mm. um, traumas and stuff. And um, there was a, oh, there was a really good uh, quote by Russell Brand where um, I ended up writing a blog on it called Trauma is the Gateway because he's got this kind of spiel where he says, you know, cannabis isn't the gateway. Um, these certain things aren't a gateway. Trauma is the gateway to everything. I don't know. There's, there's not many people that I work with in that space who haven't had a lot of them have had childhood trauma, you know, childhood abuse, sexual abuse a lot of the time. Um, and, and they've grown up in the kind of environments where you just think, of course they ended up 
on drugs. <laughs> like you'd want to feel some kind of level of happy or, mm. or numbness, right? And, and meth is such a massive problem over here. It It's not a drug that um, I ever came across back in London. For us back home, it was crack cocaine and, and heroin. Um, those were the the problem drugs, you know, um, kind of, and then recreational drugs were very different, but over here, I was pretty surprised when I came over here and, and, and people use meth recreationally and, and it's a really, really bad kind of in the same bracket as heroin and, and crack cocaine. Um, and people, the people that I work with who, who use meth nonstop is, it's always because they are hiding from their trauma and, you know, it's no surprise because it completely numbs them out, you know, and it, it messes with the frontal lobes of their brain and they don't feel any empathy either. So um, you can see why people end up there for sure. So I think you have to, rather than say what's wrong with you, say what has happened to you to make you act the way that you're acting and do the things that you're doing right now. And how can I help you with that? Um, if they're ready to be helped, I suppose. It's a great, it's a great point. Obviously, your professional who works in there. So that's the first way you point you would go to, right? So if someone's got like a substance abuse problem, that's the first question you should ask is what has happened to you? Not like why do you do that? Or, you know, you're hurting other people or it should be what has happened to you and you step them back and then you find out. And then is it where you go and you you deal with the trauma from then? You don't even worry about the substance side of it. You just deal with that and then hopefully everything sort of then you move on towards it or how does that work from a process point of view? It really depends. I think, um, I think, I think things like rehab are a really good option because, you know, they're in a, a residential rehab space for three to six months. Um, you know, they kind of go into detox first because some, a lot of the people that I work with are, are using drugs every single day, you know, and, and lots of them. Um, you can't work with, you can't pro- help people process their trauma when they're, completely smashed all day long you know you just you can't even find the trauma <laughs> so uh so for people who are are really addicted i would say detox residential rehab and then in that residential rehab space if it's a decent one not all of them are um you know they've got group counseling sessions they've got individual counseling sessions they've got medical doctors who are checking their the health of their physical body and and finding out if they've got things like cirrhosis of the liver or you know heart problems or whatever and and also helping them deal with that stuff um so it's a very contained environment they're not necessarily exposed to the outside world a lot of them don't they can't access their phone they can't call their loved ones until different stages in the program um so some people need that kind of level of support and some people go in and out of rehab for for lots of different times and and keep relapsing when they come back out into the community so for a lot of people, they need to be removed from their environment. And that's not, that's, it's easier said than done a lot of the time. Sometimes people will go into prison, go into rehab, come back out to the exact same situation that caused all the trauma in the first place. Mm. And I was going to ask you as well, from your professional perspective, what can or what should young people do who live in um, a highly stressed environment? You know, let's say they have a, a parent with a mental illness or parents with mental health conditions or substance abuse conditions. What can, young people do from your perspective to not let's say go off the go off the tracks or go go in a go on a think go in a way where they they succumb to their trauma and they might use substances or something like what's some practical stuff or some advice you could provide for them i think when you're a young child um speaking to a trusted teacher um, at school would be really important. 
um, a lot of teachers, a lot of schools will have, you know, peer support or a school counsellor and linking in with those people, I think is really important. Um, I think a lot of people are scared that child protection will just rock up and take them mm. away from home, you know, so, um, but the reality is quite different a lot of the time. And, and you know, when when you lean into the right people and you you kind of speak about what's going on, no service ultimately wants to take split up families. You know, the the ideal situation is to get in there and, and figure out what does this family need? What kind of support do they need to be able to move forward together as a family unit? Um, so I think for children to, to speak out, not necessarily always to their mates. It depends what age they are, you know, depends what their mates, whether their mates are any good for them. Um, so I think, you know, leaning on that kind of support at school um, with, you know, with the pandemic over the last couple of years, there's now lots of online services, I think, that are really, really um, useful as well. So things like Better Help, you hear lots of adverts for. Um Lots of like 24-7 free support lines that, that you can call, things like Lifeline. Um, and, yeah, just kind of leaning into those supports. In uh, Western Australia, we've got a place called Headspace. I'm not sure if it's uh, in other parts of Australia, but Headspace is a really, really great service for 12 to 21-year-olds, I think maybe a little bit older um and so headspace they're, they're actually really cool offices to go and check out because they are they're designed by teenagers and kids you know so they're really colorful they're funky colors they've got ipads that they check in and do a mental health assessment when they come in pool tables you know places that kids want to hang out in like when we talk about places like Greylands, nobody wants to hang out there but headspace are cool places for, for kids to hang out in it's almost like a youth club slash mental health service mm. um so linking in with with places like headspace is important and, and teachers and and school counselors and stuff will be able to do those referrals yeah fantastic now with your coaching business carly um before i let you go do you want to just talk about your website and where people can find you and, and reach out Yep. So uh, my website is coachcarly.com. Um, I'm on Facebook as Coach Carly. That's my coaching page. And then I've got Phoenix Transformation, which is my energy page. Um, and you can pretty much find everything on there. So I do one-on-one coaching. I do um, one-on-one uh, energy treatments, whether it's in-person or remotely. Coaching is kind of global. So a lot of it is done on video call or in person if you're in the Perth area. And I've got online um, group coaching as well. So yeah, well, there's loads of stuff. If you go on my website, there's loads and loads of blogs and videos and everything is in the kind of realm of from surviving to thriving. And pretty much it's a bunch of tools that over the years, because I've had to, I've used on myself that have helped push me through those really crappy times, you know? So, um, yeah, it's even just reading blogs. There's lots of free stuff that I, I share on there. So just have a bit of a gander and see if stuff will help. Now, I had a look at your website before. There's a lot of good material on their websites, on your website for people to go and listen to. And I think you do a lot of podcast interviews yourself as well. So there's a lot of good stuff, people that can find out more about you and listen if they found it really helpful. I found it really helpful just listening to you, to be honest. It's been really good. So Thanks. it's been um, fantastic information you've shared. And I really appreciate your time and for you to be proactive and reach out and, and come on, um, which is really good. It just, it's just great to hear from your perspective. You know, someone who's lived with someone with bipolar from a partner perspective, I know how tough it can be. Um, so it's good to hear from your perspective um, what, what's actually involved in that. And I'm sure people listening will nod their head because there's so much consistencies and, and stuff that they would recognize that we all sort of go through and can understand that's just, that's what happens when, when you have 
bipolar disorder. That's what invo- that's what's involved with it. Mm. Thanks so much, nice. Joel, for having me on. I really Thank- appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Ta. Big thanks to Coach Carly for joining me on the Lived Experience. If you want to share your story as well, reach out to me via livedexperiencepodcast.com. If you do want to contact Carly, please go to coachcarly.com. What a, what a fantastic person. If you do want to coach to help you with trauma or anything else as well, definitely check out coachcarly.com. She's got some great resources on there. And, and you've heard how much of a, a, caring, a caring and empathetic person is. And if you do need someone to help you in that regard, please make sure you use Coach Carly because you, you couldn't go wrong with that. If you do want to share your lived experience like Coach Carly, once again, please head to livedexperiencepodcast.com. Submit your story and I'd love to have you on because as I said, we need to document more of these other stories regarding mental health. It's not just all about depression and anxiety. You know, there's things like bipolar, trauma, as you heard today, and all these other things. So we need to get them documented. So please come to livedexperiencepodcast.com. And the best thing you can do for me is either leave a review or share an episode to a friend that you think can benefit so much. So once again, big thanks to Coach Carly for coming on. Really enjoyed our chat. And until next episode, I hope you have a great week, guys.